Welcome to New York's Finest, Retired and Unfiltered Podcast. The mission of this podcast is to explore the life and experiences of those who at one time held a front row ticket to the greatest show on earth, policing the streets of New York City. This show hosts a wide variety of guests from all walks of life and professions, but remains centered around introducing retired members of the NYPD to our audience while having real unfiltered discussions. Please tune in each week and like and subscribe to hear true crime stories and opinions on past and present events like you've never heard them before. Pensioner roll call. I would like to dedicate this episode to police officer Daniel J. Sanchez of the NYPD's Highway Unit 5. Daniel died on Wednesday, January 19th, 2022, from complications as a result of contracting COVID-19 in the line of duty. Danny was loved by both his co-workers and the community. He was known to his co-workers as Batman. Police Officer Sanchez had served on patrol, conditions, and anti-crime prior to joining the NYPD's elite highway unit. Danny served 15 years with the NYPD. Danny is survived by his wife and his two children. Hold on. Daniel is 47 years old. All right, everybody, we're live. On this episode, I'm going to be interviewing Adam Chattel, the chief steward for the Criminal Investigation Division of the D.C. Police Union. As a member of Washington, D.C.'s Metropolitan Police Department, Adam is a 15-year veteran. Eight of those years, he has served in the rank of detective assigned to the Criminal Investigation Division. The Metro Police Department is the sixth largest municipal police department in the nation with approximately 3,400 sworn officers and 600 civilian staff. Adam comes to us today in an official capacity as a labor representative for the union and will be providing his perspective as an active member of the service. Adam joins us today to discuss the mass police exodus occurring across our nation. Adam, welcome to the show. I'm going to thank you for taking your time out of your busy day to come and speak with us about this, the, the issues in, in, the, in the front. Um, you know, I think I really believe that New York City, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Seattle, L.A., we're all mirroring the same the same things that are going on. So I really appreciate you. I know I know you're a busy guy. Um, so if you don't mind just telling the audience a little about yourself, how you got started in your police career and, uh, you know, just bring us up to date on you real quick. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, John, it's great to be with you. Uh, it's actually an honor. Um, I'm a big fan of your uh, podcast. Uh, you know, you and I, we kind of hooked up on Twitter. Uh, I became a big fan of your content. You know, one of the reasons is, uh, you know, the big reason why I'm here today, which is as to put as much awareness, uh, you know, on the problem, you know, as we see it as today. So uh, it's a big honor to be with you. So uh, I'm originally actually from Brooklyn, New York. I was born in my Monarchy's hospital, uh, you know, growing up. Uh, we live in Staten Island. Uh, we stayed there until about second grade before we made the move to New Jersey. So what, we made that hot New Jersey. Born? What's that? What year were you born? I was born in 82. All right. I was 80. I was born in my mom and he's two. All right. So we, we got a little connection. There. All right. I'm sorry. Keep going. Sorry. No, keep no, going. No, you're fine. It's kind of funny because everybody in the world <clears throat> is born in my mom and he's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> There's like, I don't know how many hospitals in New York City, but wherever you're born, you're born in my mom and he's. But uh, so, yeah, so I lived there. Um, you know, in Jersey, uh, throughout high school, I uh, graduated high school there, um, and then I moved back to Staten Island. 
Uh, once I moved back to Staten Island, that's uh, when I started attending college. Uh, I went to uh, the City University of New York, went to CUNY, and I went to the College of Staten Island, uh, Staten Island campus. Excuse me. Uh, I did my uh, four-year degree there, graduated my Bachelor of Science in Business Management. Um, you know, growing up, I was always interested uh, in the police. Uh, my uncle was a cop in NYPD back in the 80s. I remember seeing him, you know, uh, on the steps of my grandmother's house, so impressive to me in his uniform. And, you know, I looked up to him, you know, just like any other boy, like, you know, you play cops and robbers when you're a kid, you just love the police. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, though, you know, the job was completely different, obviously, as it is now, right? It was highly revered. You know, I, I knew from an early age that I was definitely interested in police work. And, uh, you know, I, I actually knew that I always wanted to be a detective. So, you know, I'm very fortunate in, you know, where I am right now. Oh, that's great. How, how, so how did you end up in D.C. and not in the NYPD? Because that, that's 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 a that's a curious question I got for you. Like, how how that happened? Like, was it uh, did, did you move for a girl or was it after school or? No, it's uh, it's actually it's actually it's actually simpler than that. So I actually went out for NYPD in uh, 2006. So I, okay. tried to, I scored great. My list number was like 69. Right? And uh, I go through my whole background investigation. It takes like nine months and I get accepted. And I'm waiting to go in the academy. Right. You know, NYPD's got two academies. So I'm all psyched up, getting in shape. You know, everything's great. And at that time, uh, it was 25,100 to start. Right. But, yeah. you know, if you wanted to be a cop, that's what it was, right? You weren't in it to get rich. You wanted to be the police. So I was all excited. So one Sunday morning, me and my father, we're going to play, uh, we're going to play uh, softball on the hardtop. And uh, we went to go get some bagels. And uh, we got breakfast. And my dad's like, have you seen this? And I was like, what? He goes, look at the newspaper. I was like, what is it? He goes, look. He goes, uh, how much are they going to pay you in New York? I said, you know, Dad, it's 25100 you know, I'll be in your basement for a while. He's like, look, he's like, DC's hiring, you know, $50,000 to start. I was like, it's a lot of money. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, that's double. He goes, you, you know, you got to go out for it. I was like, I don't know. I was like, I never even been to DC, you know, you know, I've been on a couple of class trips when I was a kid, you know, he went to Pennsylvania, he selected Liberty Bell, but I've never been to, to DC. And I was like, I don't know. I was like, you know, I don't know much. I was like, I heard it's pretty dangerous over there. I seen a couple of uh, HBO documentaries, you know, they always said DC stands for death city. And I was like, I don't know. He's like, he's like, listen, he goes, the money's double. He's like, you really should, you know, take the test. He's like, you got a perfect background. I was like, all right, I was like, let me think about it. So I was thinking, I'm like, all right, I'm like, I'm five months out from the academy. I'm like, that's a lot more money. I was like, uh, you know what? Let, let, let me give it a shot. So I took a test and, uh, you know, I scored well, obviously. And then uh, they gave me a call and they're like, Hey, can you come down and, uh, you know, do your physical, your psychological, you know, your medical and everything. And I said, yeah, sure. So I came down there, I did it. And uh, I did my background. It was, it was crazy. It was like, you know, soup to nuts. It was like a month and a half. And uh, at that time, you know, they couldn't find any cops in DC. It's kind of like it is now, right? And uh, yeah. they called me up like, hey, can you start in two weeks? And I was like, uh, yeah, sure. And uh, I started there in uh, September of uh, 2007. Wow. Very brave, man. Very brave. <laughs> I got. I, I. I. I applaud you. I do because I. You know. I after I had retired from the NYPD, I thought about. I thought about going to a different department. I. I moved down to Florida. I'm down here in um in Ponte Vedra, Florida, and I thought about going out for St. Johns County Sheriff or Jacksonville Police Department or even the St. Augustine Police Department. And I actually did. A, I did an interview with the FDLE as well, and I, I was going to take that job too. But I just I, I backed off of it because I was like, you know, I'm so familiar with New York and um, 
I just, I didn't know the geographical area. I wasn't familiar with the laws, but I guess the way you did it, it, it makes sense. You started as a young kid, you learned it all, right? You learned the laws, you learned the procedure, you learn all that stuff at that, at that time. So, but I applaud you. That's brave, man. That's awesome. That's a great story. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that with us. So, so, so you, so, you know, tell us about your experience in DC. Like how, how that start out? Like how was your training? Like what was, what was your first few months after training too? Like what they have you doing? Sure. I mean, so, you know, I can tell you this right now. So it, it was complete culture shock to me, uh, you know, being from New York and, you know, New Jersey bouncing back and forth, you know, I was, I, 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 I took, you know, my street smarts, if you will. And I, I took them with me to DC and, you know, I took them in there, you know, in, you know, in the context of respect, you know, when you're from New York, and you're from New Jersey, you know, you're very careful, right? You don't know who you're talking to, who's a somebody who's not. And, and I took that with me because, you know, I, I was in a completely new environment. You're talking about a different culture, you know, the way people talk, you know, the foods they ate, you know, just, just everything. So, you know, I came there and I, you know, I was a little bit of culture shock, but I was like, you know what, you know, I could do this. I'm smart. Like I can get through it. So, you know, I got out the academy um, and, you know, I got my first assignment. Uh, I was assigned to um, the fifth district, uh, which is in Northeast DC. Uh, and I was assigned to an area called Trinidad, uh, which at the time was, you know, one of the most violent, you know, neighborhoods we had in DC. Uh, you know, when I got out there, I was, I, I, I remember I was assigned to the midnight tour of duty. Um, I had this, uh, you know, old vet. He had, I think he was in his like mid sixties. He was just getting ready to leave. And, he was my training officer. I'll never forget. I think it was my second night on the street. Um, we were driving around. A call came out for a shooting. And uh, he had, like, fallen asleep in the car. It was kind of funny. And I was just driving around because I'm from New York. I don't know where I am. And I'm just driving around. So I'm like, all right, just, you know, let's keep the car on the road. You know, it's like 3 o'clock in the morning. And uh, this guy woke up instantly. You heard the doo 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 He needed to respond. He had to call for a shooting. Multiple victims. So he wakes up instantly, like, you know, not a bump in the road, like not honking horns, nothing woke him up. When he heard that alert tone, this guy popped up and he's like, oh, God damn, we got a call. And I was like, yeah, he goes, God damn, where the hell are you? And I said, I don't know, you've been sleeping, I've been driving. He goes, God damn, you know, you're in the wrong part of the city. He goes, go this way. So, you know, we find a way to the shooting scene. I'll never forget. It was, uh, it was a triple murder. Um, and I was, yeah, I, I, I was there, I think it was two tours of duty straight standing there, you know, over one of the decedents. And I'm, you know, that's when it really hit me that I was, I was a police officer, you know, it was, it was kind of wild. Yeah, yeah I thought that's wild, man. That's it. Second night out. It's a triple shooting. That's, that's in and, and, and a city you don't even know, right? <laughs> Driving city to a I don't place. Know. Yeah. I and couldn't then, tell you which way was Northeast, South and West. Couldn't tell you. Yeah, because there was still no GPS at that time, 2007. You know, your phone didn't really have that. You know, there was no, like, camera phone. And even if you, there was, you, there was, like, that was still MapQuest days. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think I, I came out in 04, and we used, to, we used to take the map and laminate them and then put them on a key ring and just keep it on, the, uh, on, on like, you know, on the, on the, the gear shifter. Because there's some streets you don't know, right? You, you, you pretty much know everything. But, like, you, every now and then you'll get the call this on the street. Like, oh, shit. You know, yeah. so, uh, you know, that was still the time that was, you know, that was pre all the technology we have now where you can just boop and it'll tell you where to go. You know, uh, that's always, so, I mean, so obviously you were active cop, right? You become a detective, right? I'm sure that's not an, I'm sure that's not an easy feat, especially, you know, you're not as even the large as a police department as the NYPD, you know, 3,400 members, you know, that like, um, you know, so I'm sure it, it that it, that's, it's a harder, it's harder to achieve the rank of detective in a, in a smaller department. So, um, 
how that how that come about? Like, how long did it take you to do that? Like, how like how did you work towards becoming a detective? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, when I first had come on, you know, we were at you know close to four thousand cops at that time. You know, now we're down hundreds and hundreds of cops, but at that time, you know, we were at four thousand. You know, hovering right around there, um, uh, because you know DC is you know so so active, if you will, to put it in lighter terms, you know, there was so much opportunity. So, you know, when I first got out, I was in patrol. I was in patrol maybe a year, maybe. And then I immediately got selected for a plainclothes uh, focus mission unit. Uh, and I was in, you know, you know, numerous plainclothes units uh, for like the next four years, five years, um, you know, serving in different capacities, you know, whether it was drug work or, you know, guns and uh, warrants, you know, it was, it was always a focus mission unit. I was, you know, very proactive, you know, every day was the same thing, right? Coming to work, you know, got with my partner, we got our car and go out there and, you know, try to find a lockup, right? You know, we find a gun, we find some drugs, go in and process it and go out and find another. It was, you know, th- those, those were some, some really good times back then. But uh, as far as becoming a detective, um, I always wanted to be a detective, like I said earlier, and, you know, that was my goal. So from the minute I, you know, started working on the street, everything I did was geared towards being a detective. So, you know, I immediately, you know, started, you know, hooking up with some detectives and they were teaching me how to write search warrants. So every time I'd get into a car and I got some drugs and a gun, they teach me how to write a search warrant or, you know, if, you know, I got some stuff out of that car, I'd go write an arrest warrant. So you know, I, I started progressing up the way towards, you know, understanding how investigations work um, to eventually having, you know, confidential informants, you know, work for me and buy guns and drugs and stuff. So um, that pretty much led me to the point where uh, the first test I was able to take uh, for the position of detective or what we used to call back then investigator, I was able to take, you know, I, I did well and I was promoted. That's awesome. Yeah. No, it's awesome. Listen, that's 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 the way, right? You're either gonna go the like the supervisor route or you're gonna go the detective route. Um, so how does how does that transition into you getting involved with the union, right? Like you're the chief shop steward now. Like how how does that how did that like how did that happen? Like what what drove you to become like a union member? Yeah, like absolutely. not a union member, a union representative. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so uh, you know the lowest level we have in our DC police union as far as representation is what we call the shop steward, uh, and then after the shop stewards come the chief shop stewards, and those are the ones that run the shops. We have fifteen shops within uh, the DC police union. Uh, my shop is the criminal investigation division. Uh, the criminal investigation division encompasses uh, all of our detectives assigned to our homicide branch assigned to all of our district investigation branches, which is our seven districts, or what you call precincts, and then our special investigation branch, which has all of our specialized units. So I was a detective, I think at that point, like three years. And in 2017, uh, you know, I, I was watching policing change. You know, this was post-Ferguson. This was, you know, right after the death of Eric Garner. You know, policing had become, you know, front and center in America. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, we started to see was that, you know, there was a halting of proactive policing everywhere. And, you know, that just didn't really coincide with, you know, police work in general, right? Like cops naturally want to come out here and they want to do the right thing, right? They see a bad guy doing a bad thing and they want to address it. And what was happening was we're starting to see this gigantic influx of complaints come in. And then through those complaints, you started seeing 
you know, this, this anti-cop sentiment really take hold. And, you know, what was once, you know, due process was now, you know, you know, prove your innocence. So in 2017, I decided I'm going to get involved in mid-union. And the reason why is that two of my friends that were detectives, they were active in the union. Uh, they were both reps and, you know, I, I watched everybody come to them and they, they were really good at helping cops. And I think part of it was because they were detectives, right? They're able to look at a, a look at a complaint or look at an allegation and say, okay, like, you know, is, is this a violation of the contract? You know, is this cop being treated fairly? And, you know, they, they were really successful. And I said to myself, you know what? I think I could do that. Like, I think I could help other cops. So um, in 2017, it was in the middle of, uh, of a term. We have two-year terms. And uh, there was a vacancy uh, for a union rep. So for a shop steward, threw my name in the hat, and I got appointed. So uh, I did that for a year, uh, you know, got my feet wet, and, uh, you know, decided, hey, I want to do this. Uh, the next election that came up, I ran for shop steward within the criminal investigation division. I was elected. So I did that for two years. I did really well. Well, after doing that for three years, the two detectives that I admire most, uh, they ran for uh, the top five positions of the union, uh, chairman and the treasurer, where they uh, sit right now. So it was only you know right for me to run for the seat of chief shop steward for CID or criminal investigation division. And uh, I did so. Uh, I was pretty successful, uh, one with over 85% of the vote. So, you know, did pretty well. Uh, I did a full term and uh, I was up for re-election last December. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I ran out of post. So uh, I'm back again for my second term. And, uh, you know, I love it. Uh, I will tell you this, you know, when I first started out as a union rep, I could have never in my wildest dream imagined that, you know, I would be running the largest and most diverse shop within the entire DC police union uh, during a pandemic and during the war on law enforcement. So uh, it's, it's been a wild ride. Oh, yeah. It sounds like, yeah, it sounds like you're an active cop. You know, you go, you go to the, right. I'm sure you worked in all the, basically all of those spots in criminal investigation division, your time in plain clothes work, your time in investigation. And then you see something going on and you feel that you have the knowledge to help other guys, right? Like, I think you're the type of guy that is needed in unions, right? We don't want a guy that's like, hey, I just want to be on the political end of it. And you're, you're actually still active too, right? Like, you're still out there. You're still handling investigations too. Is, am I correct in that? Yeah, I mean, you are correct. And, you know, it's kind of uh, it's kind of funny because, you know, once you once you become uh, a chief steward like I am, uh, you know, you, you pretty much are bound to, you know, the contract, whereas in – you know, you could just focus entirely on doing union work, you know, and, you know, some of these guys that, you know, in other chief spots, like, you know, they don't go on the street anymore. They just, you know, focus on the union work. There's plenty of it. Uh, I, I completely uh, don't ascribe to that at all. I believe that in order to represent people, you have to be out there doing the work and especially when it comes to detective work. So uh, I am out there. I take a full caseload, uh, you know, got a great closure rate and, I do both. Uh, do I get a lot of sleep? No. Uh, but, you know, this is this is what I signed up for. And I think that if you're going to represent cops, you have to know what's going out there, you know, on the street and, you know, especially in the world of investigations, which is ever changing with technology. You know, you, you got to have your head in the game. I, I agree 100 percent, you know, representation and leadership as well. You know, like it, I always said, like I wasn't, you know, you, you'll have guys that like I supervise a lot of people and you'll have guys that will say, I wasn't the the uh, 
the most loving guy, but they always respected me because anything I ever told anybody to do, I've done it, you know, and they knew that and they knew I knew what I was talking about, you know? Um, so that, that's huge in leadership to know what, what the consensus is of the guys doing the work. Right. And, and then even so much for representation too, because how could you possibly represent, you know, the police work is, you know, we're, we're constantly being, we're constantly being criticized, right? I don't care. You do the best job in the world. You save a child choking, you go to a 911 call, you save them. That, that scenario will be scrutinized a million ways to Sunday, right? So, you know, what, what happened there? Did you do it right? How was your response time? What were you doing prior to that? All of those things. And, you know, the same is true with the investigation, right? Once you guys get the case, how long did it take you to do the initial canvas? You know, so on, so forth. So, you know, when you're knowing all that, right, you know what to tell you guys to keep them safe. That's first off to avoid the nonsense and the stupid, the stupidity that could come with it. Right. And then, and then to actually be able to, you know, Hey, hey, this guy did nothing wrong. This is what we do. This is what happens. We get a case. We did this, we did that. Right. And to back off the pressures that, you know, cause I, you know, from our, you know, I, I know in the NYPD and I know in the New York city elected, the elected are putting pressure on our leadership to basically hammer us on incidents that they don't like, whether we did it right or wrong, you know? So you know, you're in a tough spot, man. I, I give you credit for doing that. You know, that's uh, that that's brave. It's brave. You know, most guys like, like you know, most guys, I, even me, I never ran. I never wanted to get involved in the union. I just wanted to do what I had to do. I felt like I had my own responsibilities that ate my life. So I can't even imagine you taking on a second job now and still taking a, a full caseload. So I, I, I definitely applaud you for that. man. That's that's wild, you know. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I definitely appreciate that. I, I, I will tell you, there's some days, you know, you know, they're long days and, you know, you know, constantly, you know, you know, writing grievances and, you know, standing up for guys and, you know, representing them down in internal affairs all day and taking on management. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, there are good cops out here. In fact, all the cops are good cops. They're hardworking guys. And, you know, they need to be focused on, you know, their job. This is, this is very dangerous time to be a police officer and you know god bless you know i i i feel like i have the knowledge i have the strength and i'm going to keep doing what i'm doing i mean these guys these guys need a voice you know i i, I don't have you know, free reign but i certainly have you know some protection so you know with those that i have i'm gonna i'm gonna keep speaking out you know for my guys and other cops around the country oh, thank you thank you for that no it's good that's, that's awesome man um, so let, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Right. So I know I know in New York City, you know, we were the basically my the majority of my career, we were deploying like broken windows theory. Right. We were policing minor crimes, stopped the major ones. You know, we were out there, you know, basically, basically making hundreds of arrests a night, hundreds of stops a night all over the city and all of our precincts. Uh, it sounds like you guys were doing the same. Is, is that true? Were you, were you guys employing those same tactics, like going into high crime areas and policing anything that was going on? Uh, or what style were you guys doing it down in Washington, D.C.? No, I mean, we were doing the exact same. I mean, it was exact same of, you know, the degree of which you were uh, describing, which is, you know, that's exactly how, you know, we made the streets safe. Um, you know, you could even go a step further with our department. Uh, you know, we've done a complete, 180. I mean, we went from not only just doing proactive policing, but we had some of the most focused mission work when it came to policing. And I'll give you an example. We used to have a unit, um, it was called Strike Force. Uh, their only job in this entire world was to go out there on the street 
and do narcotic enforcement. And they would do this enforcement and they would get guys to flip on homicides. And that's how we closed murders. I mean, it was, it was, it, it, it was, it was the bedrock of police work, right? Which is, you know, going after these offenders, you know, to catch that fish that way we can go ahead and at the top, you know, bring some closure to a family, somebody that, you know, lost a loved one from gun violence, no matter, you know, what their lifestyle was. Um, but, you know, right now it's, it's the complete opposite, right? It's just this whole push towards intelligent led policing and, you know, this whole idea of, you know, people are starting to, you know, they keep hearing this term now of violence interruption. It's, it's pretty incredible where we are now. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, like the, the message that I I'm constantly hearing from all the politicians in New York city and, and even across the country is that, Oh, locking up people who use drugs is, is wrong. You're criminalizing poverty. You're criminalizing drug use. You're criminalizing things that you're, you're criminalizing someone who has disease. But, you know, the message is really like what we were really doing is we're not going out there and really going after the users. We're, we, we, we did lock up drug users. We did. One, it kept the streets safe. It kept our parks clean. Two, we got we got information off of that. We got information of who the drug dealer was, and that's who we went after to put in jail, the drug dealers, right? And then, hey, you know what? We even picked up information about shootings, murders, right? Every, you would know everything. Who's doing the burglaries in the neighborhood? And then we even went so far down the totem pole that, you know, we would, we would lock up in high-crime neighborhoods kids for smoking marijuana as well, right, for the same purpose. One, to make sure that we could stop them, that – they didn't have a gun in the car or they didn't have anything else, but other for information, right? We weren't there. No, nobody was going to jail for marijuana or, or a minor drug crime in New York City my whole life. So I don't know where this whole thing was that we were locking up people for minor drug use and they were going to jail forever. And that was kind of the guys in 2013 when, when we start to turn. I don't know what year you guys seen it, but in 2013, we go away from, you know, our big thing was stop, question, frisk. Which, but really what it was, was policing minor crimes, was broken windows, Gary. And we start to go away from that. And, and you know, we've seen the effects of it, you know, right almost almost immediately. You know, he pulls, uh, Bill de Blasio pulls a stop question for us from us. He demonizes. He's like, I don't want you stopping people. We're like, fine. I'm an anti-crime supervisor at the time. And I just tell my guys, I'm like, hey, listen, don't worry about it. We only stop people for crimes anyway, whatever they may be. Open drug use whether it be marijuana, shooting up, smoking crack. Uh, maybe it's a bunch of guys drinking in public. Maybe it's so minor like that. But we did that to find out or to close patterns that were going on in the neighborhood, burglaries, shootings, whatever it may be, robberies, right? And, and so, like, what year do you start to notice a change in from how you were policing and your work to you start to see, like, post-Michael Brown? When does it start to take effect in Washington, D.C., for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so first of all, you know, everything you just said sounds a lot like police work, right? <laughs> you kind of miss it almost, right? Like, you know, that was police work, right? That's, that's, that's why everybody signed up. Uh, but yeah, no. So uh, for us, it started to turn in 2017. Uh, and, you know, we started to really see it. Uh, at that time, the chief disbanded all of our vice units. And that right there was, in my opinion, the beginning of the end. So, you know, we had seven vice units, one signed to each district or what you guys call precincts. Uh, and these, you know, these were, you know, our most, you know, 
if you will, focus mission talented officers. These were the guys that did all the social crimes, right? And, you know, I know that you know this, but for anybody that's listening, you know, crime is an ecosystem, right? It, they're, they're, there's things that feed off of one another, right? So, you know, when we're talking about social crimes, you know, we're talking about drugs, we're talking about prostitution, we're talking about illegal gambling, right? And cops know that if you allow kids to sit outside in a corner shooting dice, well, guess what? There's going to be money on the ground. And if there's money on the ground, someone's going to want to walk up and take that. And they're probably going to shoot you or they're going to rob you. And then we have a shooting, right? You know, you go to, you know, the drug work, you know, you know, yes. And I agree with you. You know, there, there, there is a certain level of scrutiny that's always come with drug use versus drug selling. But, you know, when we talk about these, you know, these abusers, these abusers are the reason why that we have our drug dealers, right? It's part of that ecosystem. So, you know, getting rid of, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, compartmentalizing, if you will, this ecosystem is kind of how, like, you know, we kept this, we kept this pot of boiling water uh, from boiling over. Um, and, you know, with the drug dealers came with the guns. So once we disbanded our vice units immediately upon just, uh, you know, within weeks, we we're able to see the gun violence just spike. And that's because these drug dealers, these social crimes were going unchecked. Nobody was getting out of the car and talking to these guys. They weren't you know, being challenged. They weren't, you know, running when they saw us. They weren't, you know, they were just outright selling because nobody was checking them. And that to me was, you know, pretty much the beginning of the end as far as, you know, the spike in crime. Yeah, we saw a similar, I think we disbanded anti-crime and uh, we did it a lot later, right before uh, our last police commissioner left, we disbanded uh, the anti-crime units. But but policing had changed already. We already went away from proactive policing. And, you know, what, and what you're talking about is, is omnipresence, right? Like people are afraid to carry guns. People are free to openly use drugs. So you get less of those crimes. And these are things that you, we, we can never pull a statistic for, right? Because we don't know what omnipresence, how many crimes omnipresence has deterred. We don't know how many people have been saved from the omnipresence of, oh, there's a guy in plain clothes in a car somewhere watching me and they're going to come and stop me the minute I do anything. Because that happened in all of the cities that were deploying, you know, these broken windows tactics, you know, that that's what it really was. That was the overwhelming sense is that we were everywhere, even though we were limited to really where we could be. But we, we did get out and interact with people. And you're right. And that stopped a lot of things. And then when we stopped doing that, it, it basically, I, you know, what I always said is, you know, police provide a bubble for everyone. Everybody walks around. What do you need the cops for? I heard that a couple of times in my career. We don't even need cops. What do they do anyway? They drink coffee. They, they eat donuts. And I was like, oh, yeah. And I, I never even, <laughs> and, and I would laugh. And these people are city workers. These people would be teachers, firemen, whoever. And I would always laugh because I'm like, oh, well, you have no idea what we deal with on a nightly basis. You have no idea that the, the things we keep you safe from that you don't see. You just go about your day in la-la land and we're doing a focused look and we have a sharp trained eye to see what's going on, right? I would see guys, you know, in the middle of Manhattan do a drug deal and, and there were 50 people around. No one even saw it, you know? I, I saw it, but now we break that bubble we, we lose that omnipresence. Now, all these people that were saying, what do we need cops for? They're all saying, where the hell are the cops? Because now they're seeing it with an untrained eye. Because this is what happens when we step away from, from focusing on crime, right? It sounds like your vice units were like our anti-crime units, you know? These were, the, these were the guys that knew who the players were. 
paid attention to where the crimes were taking place, focused on those areas, changed their tours to go to go work those hours that the crimes were occurring. And, you know, they were the, the more seasoned cops. Um, so, yeah, when you step away from that, obviously it's it's going to go, you know, it's going to go away. And like with any trends that you've seen spike immediately, like any crime trends, you see a spike immediately when 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 the uh, when when we step back. Yeah, absolutely. But before I talk about that, I just want to just jump back on something you said, because you, you made a really, really important point, which was that, you know, aside just from the crime spiking, we lost a major component of police work, which is intelligence, right? These focused missions and units, whether you call them vice units or, you know, anti-crime, they, they all did one thing really well, right? Which is that they were actually out there face-to-face -face with these guys. So they knew who the players were. So some detective out there, like me, that's working a shooting, a robbery, a stabbing, a carjacking, you know, and, you know, we have a victim that's like, hey, uh, you know, I'm the cab driver and I just drive in the cab and, you know, he put a knife to my neck and, you know, he just robbed me of my money. OK, well, what do you did you see him? No. But what else do you remember? Well, the guy in the back seat sitting next to him kept calling him, you know, kept calling him Moo Dog. OK, well, who's Moo Dog? Well, you would go to your vice units and say, yo, who's heard of Moo Dog? And so I'd be like, yo, I know who Moo Dog is. Bro. Moo Dog is actually, you know, you know, Michael Johnson, and you know, this is his date of birth. Like, and now we had a guy to throw inside of a photo array and go show it to somebody. Well, we lost that. We completely lost that part of policing, you know, and it wasn't just like, you know, like, like we discussed, you know, just, just, just the crime not being addressed. Yeah, sure. That was bad, but we lost that major component of being able to have that intelligence. So uh, I, I think you made a great point there. As far as the trends go, um, you know, I, I, I will say this, you know, being in a major city, and, I, and I, I think you probably agree with me, you know, just with New York, you know, you're always going to see spikes in crime. But, you know, what we really saw was right after, you know, the death of George Floyd, you know, starting in June of 2020 is, is, when, is when crime really began to spike in this country, in our major cities. And I, I, I think that, you know, started with the defund the police movement, which was that, hey, uh, you know, we're going to embolden criminals and we're going to demonize all cops because, you know, they're inherently violent people. And, uh, you know, we're 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 going to delegitimize them. So the trends that we began to saw was immediately, a pro, you know, a, prolifer a proliferation, excuse me, in gun violence. Uh, we saw shootings just spike. Um, obviously, you know, our homicides went up, uh, you know, just to give you just a little bit of perspective uh in dc we entered the last day of 2021 uh with 227 homicides so that's a 15 percent increase over 2020s 20 percent increase in murders and just 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 to put it all together those were numbers we never saw since 2003 before i even came on the department so you know when we talk about spikes in crime right you know, you, you, you really have to put your finger on it. And, you know, it, it basically started with the defund the police movement. Yeah. I mean, it started much earlier for us, but yeah, that was the defund the police movement was huge, you know, and that really comes after Floyd, right? That's the whole, that's really when it, it take holds for us. And when they're like, you know what, we're going to defund, we're going to defund the police. And, you know, that movement was, you know, that movement was everything, right? Like we, we had just, we, we had, we're right in the early onset of COVID. Uh, George Floyd happens. Uh, that incident happens. Whatever anyone's take on it, it is what it is. It, it's incidents happen everywhere. I'm not even here to discuss that. I don't really, it, it is, we, I've spoken about it a million times. Really don't want to get into it. But the incident happens. Every, the, the nation's outraged. Uh, you know, you have all different views on it. 
And here comes, we're going to defund the police. We're going to defund the NYPD. We're going to defund Washington, D.C., L.A. These places that didn't even happen, right? And at the same time that 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 defund the police, the talk starts happening, the rhetoric starts talking. And we have had that rhetoric. We had had that rhetoric for a while since, you know, 2013. We've had cops get assassinated, you know, um, we've, we, and we saw more violence towards us, right? Like every the arrests that I was making that were predominantly were fine and we weren't experiencing resisting arrests, we were getting constant, we were constant pushback. Everybody with their phones out stopped them. Everyone was looking at us as the bad guy because that's what the media or our politicians would tell them, defund the police, defund the police. And at the same time, our district attorneys weren't prosecuting our district attorneys were throwing the case out oh COVID's here you know what we can't do anything too bad uh it is what it is we're just gonna drop this case um and then we started seeing all the decarceral stuff now hey nobody should be in jail they open our jails so yeah i i agree uh the real real spike that we have seen is right after that movement what was the defund the police like movement like in Washington, D.C.? Did it, did it really take hold on you or was it just at a national level? Sure. So I, I think I think in order to answer, I think it's it's important for that. Anybody that's listening to understand exactly what defund the police means. Right. It's not just a monetary clause. Right. Defund the police means delegitimize the police. Right. It means telling people it means ascribing to the idea that cops are bad. Right. That cops are criminals. Cops are out here. They're violent. They're hurting people. They're, you know, they're 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 not using force that's proportional. They're they're doing things that are illegal. Like that's what defund the police means. So, you know, w- when it came to Washington D.C., I, you know, I, I can't speak for other places. I can tell you what I saw on the news, but I can tell you for D.C. Uh, D.C. It rocked us to our core. Uh, we're the nation's capital. I'll never forget. I was home uh, on May thirtieth uh, when. Um, you know, I was watching on TV. I was watching, you know, different cities starting to, you know, pop up with the uprisings, you know, the, the demonstrations. And I was like, wow, I was like, this is really bad. Uh, and then, you know, for days prior to May 30th, uh, about two days before, we had our CDU units, which are basically our riot control cops on standby and coming into the city for just in case. Well, on May 30th, I'll never forget, it was the afternoon and I got a call from my lieutenant and he was like, hey, uh, calling everybody back in, you know, get your stuff, pack a bag, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. But, you know, based on what happened last night at the White House with the fencing, you know, this, this isn't looking good. So I remember going into the city that night, and I was like, wow, I was like, you know, you know, is something really going to happen here? Like, is, is this is this really going to happen? You know, because we had all watched what happened, in, in, you know, Minneapolis, and you saw the third precinct fall. Um, you know, and I, I know, for me, as a police officer watching that, you know, that kind of broke my heart a little bit, right? Because uh, as, as much as a police station is symbolic, um, being a detective, I couldn't help but look at that burning and thinking to myself, my God, how many victims are not going to get justice because of that building burning? You know, as a detective, you know, you know your police station contains numerous, you know, just insurmountable pieces of evidence. You're talking about you know, rape kits and guns and, you know, stuff from crime scenes. And I'm thinking to myself, there's video evidence and all this stuff that detectives have collected. And that's, that's gone now. It's, it's burned up. Like it kind of, it kind of got to me a little bit, you know, so I started thinking like, you know, my God. Um, but, you know, for us, you know, that hit and, you know, we had a couple of uh, the first two nights were, you know, they were extremely crazy in DC, you know, the cops were out there and 
you know, they were, you know, parts of the city were set on fire. We had businesses that were looted and, uh, you know, that was bad. But for DC, the real defund the police movement was the entire summer for us. And I know that New York certainly had its fair share for us being the nation's capital. We had daily demonstrations. We had cops working around the clock. You know, this is the height of COVID, by the way. You know, cops are getting sick. People are out there. Wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. Um, and cops are working around the clock. It's hot. They're out there. And this is when we saw defund the police really take hold, right? You had people out there that were not just challenging the police. They were outright antagonizing and attacking the police. And this is when you saw something that, at least in my opinion, I had never seen before. You know, you saw some cell phone videos on social media before this. You know, you saw some stuff in Ferguson. But this was the first time you saw a concerted effort to actually you know, to actually create, if you will, an even more dangerous situation. Yeah, no, it was it was a very dangerous situation. Uh, you know, like we we had seen the protest prior, but not to that level and not to the organization that it was, too. And, you know, for me, no one could ever tell me that those were pop up demonstrations. Those were organized and planned um, every single one of them. And, you know, we dealt with that that whole summer. We dealt with New, you know, we always deal with protests. New York City, we have. I'm sure Washington D.C. You have. Pro, you probably have five protests going on right now, even if it's raining, right? Like you know, and and you know, but it was not this, you know. And we have so we had anti-cop rhetoric. We have you know May Day every year. We have all these anti-police or protests, but never to that level. Never where people have video cameras with them. They have radios. They have vests. They're being told where to go. Very very organized. It. It really was disheartening to see how my leadership took a step back at it. And we really did. And to see what we were doing at that time, you know, prior to that time, um, if we locked you up for being a menace to society or being disorderly or being violent, causing crowds to form, confronting police officers like that, there's no way you were getting issued a desk appearance ticket. And for anyone that doesn't know what that means, basically, we bring you to the precinct. We process you, we take your fingerprints, and we release you in a few hours until you come back in a couple of days. You know, go see the judge in a couple of days. Um, we would, you would never get that courtesy in the past because that is a courtesy. It should be, that person should have been put in jail. But what we've seen during that time is we had to release these people and we already had a time limit. We had to get them out of that station house in four hours. So the same menace that we locked up the, in the beginning that was causing the most trouble, that was violent, that was not only a danger to us, but the public as well. Um, we, we rest them three different times, you know, so manpower issues, uh, you know, all of, all of this stuff that we seen during that whole time was unprecedented. And then again, everything was being dropped. There is no, even if you got a desk appearance ticket, when you did get a desk appearance, there was no, there was no nothing for you. You know, there was no consequence for your action. You were never going to have to face anything for that. There was no fear of anything. So it emboldened the protesters to do it even more, uh, to go out, to, to smash things, to burn things, to spray paint historic buildings. You know, pig. Uh, what, what was, the, what was the, the thing that they call the cops? Uh, F-12, right? Something like that? Absolutely. F-12, I mean, and, and just, you know, just the heart, you know, the underscore stuff you said, which is really important, is that it was a concerted effort. They had medics. They had food stations. I mean, it was completely organized, right? It, it, but the only people that weren't organized were us. Because at that time, you know, you watch police brass in pretty much every major city do the same thing, which was like, hey, uh, we're not telling you not to do nothing, but we want you to do something. 
right? And that was not a clear message because, you know, you're talking about desk appearances. We had something similar, which is called mass processing. We would go out there, you know, on a daily basis and lock people up for riotous behavior, you know, you know, destroying property, setting things on fire. And, you know, they would come right back out there. And none of these people were ever, you know, they were never prosecuted in these people. And, you know, we had so many police officers that were injured. So many cops were injured. We had, I'll never forget, we had one of our union officials, a close friend of mine, he was nearly blinded in the eye with a laser beam. And this is in the middle of the summer. You know, they brought out laser beams. They were shooting them in police officers' eyes. And, you know, the city had to scramble and go get some eye protection. I mean, you know, what cops went through back then, I, I, you know, I don't think that you could have written a movie, uh, you know, if you tried to try to, to, you know, to try to anticipate what was going to happen. And, 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 you know, just to remind everyone, only a few weeks prior to that, and even in the hours leading up to that, you know, cops, EMS workers, nurses, uh, doctors, people were cheering for us in the street, right? We go into this pandemic that the news media and everyone tells us, Basically, if you get this, there's a good chance you're going to die. They're telling us we're going to lose. They don't even know the percentage of the amount of Americans we're going to lose. And I know for us, you know, we didn't know we didn't have enough hospital beds. We didn't have supplies. We didn't have masks. We didn't have anything. We're trying to get it now. We're trying to go back, right? Like we're trying to, oh, what, what could we do? We got to get these guys masks, but how much, we're going to need orders of masks, this, that, the other thing. You couldn't even buy masks in the stores, but the overwhelming majority of us, I was like, hey, it is what it is. It's my job. I got to go out. I went out before and a million other things. I went out in natural disasters. I went out in riots. I, I ran towards people shooting. I run toward, I, I still do. I run to people. Something bad happened. I'm going, you know, something happens when I'm off duty. I'm there. Right. Like and and, you know, and now all of a sudden, you know, something happens 5000 miles away and we demonize a whole profession. You know, like I said, whatever your thoughts are, that could be the worst thing in the world. A cop across the country, let's just say, in, 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 a, in a scenario, puts someone on their knees and executes them, shoots them in the head. How is every cop guilty of that? How, how do we just demonize a whole profession for that? And overnight, we went from, we went from corporations saying, oh, we're going to give you guys 15% discounts and we're going to give you free shirts, to overnight, we're getting black squares and we're being told that we're racists. And, you know, to me, I, I took that so personally I, I, at that time. I was like, this is such a lie, man. I was like, you know, I was like, we, you know, police officers encompass everybody, every sex, every religion, every gender, every every race, every creed, every sexual orientation. Like we, we have every political ideology serve, you know, um, but I, you know, I at that time it was it really was. It was so it was such a disheartening time, man. I, I got to be honest. At that time, I was really like, what the hell is going on here? And, and for me, being a supervisor, I really started to question what the hell I'm doing. I'm like, what am I doing? You know, um, you know, because I, you know, I, you know, like I said, we go out there, we risk our lives through that whole pandemic. And now here we are with a bad guy because you didn't like one thing that happened 5000 miles away in Minneapolis. It's like, all right, where, where's the common sense? Where's the leadership? Not only in our department, because, you know, as much as I could knock leadership in the NYPD, they're really being led by our elected. And it's the elected's job to lead the masses, right? To bring, to bring structure to everybody. And instead, we were getting a divisive message, you know? 
And, 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 and we saw that, right. We saw that all over the news. We saw that in, in, in everything, commercials, the, 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 the toys that kids, they were pulling cop toys off the shelves. I'm like, what the hell is going on? You know? No, it really was disheartening. I mean, I, I it's, you know, it's kind of crazy sitting here having this conversation with you because, you know, you don't forget this stuff, but you know, now I'm sitting here and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm smiling ear to ear. Cause I'm thinking to myself, you know, how right you are. I mean, you know, we, I, I remember during the pandemic, you know, uh, cops and firefighters, you know, you know, we were the ones, right. Everybody was cheering for us, you know, everybody's home telecommuting and, you know, surfing Amazon, looking for hand sanitizer, making TikTok videos. And we're out on the street, right? Like nothing changed for us. You're right. We had no hand sanitizer, you know, we had no mask, no nothing. And we were still out there doing thing. And I remember, you know, there were places that were coming by and bringing us food because they had nothing. They didn't want to throw it out. They'd bring us food and water. And then you're right. And then a couple of months later, it was like, yeah, uh, now not only we demonize, but like we have literally been canceled. I remember I would go to a Starbucks one time. There was a sign that said no cops. I mean, we all saw it. Like we all felt it. Like your presence was not accepted anywhere, period. You know, and, you know, and this, this to me, and I, and I think that you're, you'll agree with this. You know, one of the things, you know, when you're a police officer, you know, and I've gotten this question where people always say, like, what do you do when you have to go to the restroom? Like, you're right. Like, we don't always drive back to the station. I remember once that hit, you know, you, you always go to local businesses, right? You know, a place you can go to the restroom. I remember, like, I would drive back to the station all the time when I'd use the restroom. So I'm like, I don't know if I should go in. You know, no one liked us. No one wanted to talk to us. Like, we weren't welcome anywhere. And, you know, it, it, it really was an unsettling feeling. And, you know, I I think that, you know, what, what you're describing and what I'm talking about is, you know, part of the bigger conversation we're having today, which is, you know, that cops just, they feel abandoned. They feel abandoned by, you know, their city. They, you know, by their leaders. They feel abandoned by top police brass across the country. And I think you said something which is really important is that, you know, that there's, there's a lot of politics involved. And, you know, if you look historically, police have never really been that political, right? Like we've, we've done a job that, you know, listen, police work is, is not like it is on TV, right? It's not sexy. You know, if you really have ever done a ride along with a police officer, it's, you know, usually pretty boring until it's exciting, right? And then when it's exciting, it's like, whoa, like that was close. Like, you know, it usually involves somebody either going to jail and, somebody sometimes gets hurt. So, um, you know, it's, 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 it's certainly not what it was, but I, I could say right now that most cops feel that, you know, they've been abandoned and they're looking around saying, Hey, um, we know that not everybody feels this way. Right. And, and, and I could just tell you this, and this is important. So, you know, in June of 2020, you know, the, the defund the police movement started. Well, a year later in August of 2021, our union said, Hey, you know, we don't believe it. Right. Like we don't believe that the citizens want less police. We just don't believe it. So we went out and we had, you know, a, you know, a solid study done and we had a, a poll taken of the residents of the District of Columbia. And, you know, I actually prepared it today and, and I think it's really important. So the key takeaways were that residents cited public safety and crime as their number one concern. Now, mind you, this is just one year out from 2020. So we're in August of 2021. So 74% of the people that we polled said that they all had a favorable favorable opinion of all the DC cops, right? Um, and they all said that they had a 75% favorable rating of all the cops that they knew. Uh, but this was the most damning, right? 91% of all the people we polled said they wanted more police officers in the neighborhood. 71% they opposed cuts to police funding. 75% opposed reducing the size of any police force to include our own. So 
you know, the numbers were there. We knew it was there, but it was almost like this is like, you know, a silent majority. Like they were kind of almost constricted, right? Where if they came up or they said anything, and I think it's still true to this day, you know, they're called racist and they're called, you know, sympathizers. I, I, I just think that, you know, we're at the point now where the narrative needs to be changed. The, the, we need to, not we, the police, but as a society, I think that we need to take a hard look on what's happened the past two years, take stock of where we're at and, you know, decide on whether or not if, you know, this is sustainable. Yeah, I, I think that's very important what you just said, man, because I, I always said I always said the same thing, you know, and, and, the, and, you know, people that aren't cops will always say, oh, there's a thrift between the police and black communities. And I always say that that's bullshit. That's not even anywhere near accurate. If you listen to your local politician, that's accurate. If you listen to the news media, that's accurate. If you listen to Hollywood, that's accurate. When you actually go into those neighborhoods and you deal with the people, because the overwhelming majority, 98% of those people are great people, like every other community, and you have the 2% that ruin it for everybody else in all communities, in every ethnicity, right? And they all love us. There's, there is no thrift. And, and that's exactly what you said. If you actually pull these people, they don't want less police. They don't hate the police. They don't want to defund the police. They, they want the police there. You know, you walk down the block. Hey, what are you doing? How's everything? They, people like the police because who are the police? The police are, are, are people from that community who are there serving their community, right? They're not, they're, you live in the community and you're there protecting these people. And, you know, that's the narrative that we hear. So, I, that, I, you know, that's, that's great that you guys did that polling, that you went around um, and did that. Um, so now we come to where we are now, right? We're having a mass exodus. Uh, I know everyone's familiar with my story. And, 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 and in my story, I feel that my story is a continuation of Defund the Police, right? And a story for a lot of New York City police officers. Now, I wasn't paying attention nationwide what was going on. I know that the trends were similar. But for me, I retired early due to the vaccine mandates. I had already got infected with COVID. I had my antibodies were through the roof. I submitted both a religious and a medical exemption. I get denied like thousands of other guys after we already had it two years later. And the vaccine mandate starts. Um, And then you start to see guys leaving, right? You start to see unvaccinated cops leaving, like myself. But then something else happens. You start to see young guys leaving. You start to see the guys with over 20 years leaving. And these are unprecedented things. You, you, like, you know, if you want to just say, oh, like the unvaccinated guys left, then okay, right? That's just that one group. It was that one cause, which I do believe in New York was the number one cause. But you had you have guys and you still have today you have young cops that are vaccinated that followed the, the mandate and they're leaving and they're like i'm not even doing this job anymore i'm like where are you going i i'm starting a business i'm going to do something else what were you guys seeing like wh- when did it start for you the exodus uh, you know because that that's what i saw i saw one way had to defund the police that I missed that I just want to back up one second, right when right at the onset of defund the police, when they actually passed it, when New York City Council passed it for us, there was a, a ton of guys that had over 20 years on, they were retirement eligible, they pulled all overtime because they, they, they took a billion dollars out of a budget, they pulled all overtime, it would have affected all these guys pensions, they would have lost a lot of money. So you had a wave of guys go. So you had those guys go, then we start 
with the vaccine mandate. But the vaccine mandate to me was a defund the police movement. And that was the domino that just started trickling down. Boom, 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 boom. And now we're just seeing everybody leave. So, and, and, and not only are people leaving, we can't recruit. We can't get anybody in. We get, and, and the classes we do recruit aren't meeting the goals of the recruitment size that we want. And then when they get there, they go through the academy, they leave. So, you know, what, what were you guys seeing at DC? Like, how was it for you? So, first of all, everything you said there, uh, you know, pretty much encapsulates, for that matter, what we're seeing, right? And that there is a mass exodus of police officers across the country, coast to coast. It, it is for a myriad of reasons. But what it boils down to, and it's pretty much everything you discussed, which is the way cops are treated, right? So, you know, take it at its most basic, right? Look no further than out your window or on social media. It's not hard to see a video. I'm sure you saw the one that just popped up on Twitter the other day of the two NYPD officers, you know, being abused and being, you know, the, the, the racial epithets. I mean, it's, 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 it's honestly disgusting. I, it's, it's grotesque. I can't think of anything other way to say it. But you're watching cops be abused and treated in a way that is extremely off-putting, not to just the seasoned guys, but to anybody that wants to take this job. You know, and, and, and I think it's important to say this. Listen, you know, these aren't my words. My chairman says this a lot. And, you know, he's, he's, he's very outspoken about this. But cops have thick skin. They do. And they can take a lot of abuse. We do. But what we can't take is when you have your leadership in other places stamping that saying that's okay and encouraging more of it and and i think that that to us at least in dc was kind of the breaking point that's when it fractured for us and you know within that first year uh we saw about 400 cops either resign quit or go to other departments now you know one of the things that a lot of police officers have told us is that hey uh you know I love law enforcement, but, you know, I think I can see myself doing something else because I got a family and I don't want to be the next video on Twitter or, you know, some social media where my family is going to be doxxed, right? My kids can't go to school or I have to move because, you know, my plate, my face is plastered, you know, all over the five o'clock news. So they started leaving, um, you know, and then what you started to see was, okay, well, you know, if this is no longer a revered job and, you know, people don't want it, then why would other people want it? So now, now, now the defund the police is in high gear, but then came the other component, which is the vaccine mandates. Now the vaccine mandates hit us in DC are obviously not as far as it hit you guys. Um, we're in a different spot than you guys. I can tell you this, we have lost a considerable amount of uh, members of our department to the vaccine mandate. We have members that were like, Hey, there's no way, no how I'm taking this. We had other members that were like, hey, this is against my religion. We had other members that had medical exemptions. And they were like, you know what? I'm just going to get out before they even make me take it. So we lost a handful of people there. What we then saw was that we started rallying against them. And, you know, we said, hey, listen, you can't make us do this. You can't make us do this. Uh, we right now are in a actually a pretty decent place, believe it or not. You know, we've lost a significant amount of officers who have either been, you know, terminated or disciplined for or have just outright quit but you know we we were very successful in filing an injunction where while we were denied um our injunction uh you know we are waiting right now on a summary judgment um the judge in the case uh said that you know 
he concludes that we are substantially likely to succeed on the merits. So, you know, we're hoping that decision comes any day and, you know, we'll be able to kind of get this thing lifted because, you know, like you discussed, you know, you have people that have medical exemptions, you have people that have, you know, religious exemptions. Um, but I, I, I think that, you know, aside just from the vaccines, I think that, I think it's everything. I think it's the vaccines, I think it's the attitude. And the reason why I also know that to be true is that if you look at a place like my department, we're offering a $20,000 signing bonus. $20,000 signing bonus just to sign up. You get $10,000 before you go into the academy and $10,000 upon graduating. That's 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 pretty much what they were going to pay me in 2007 if I would have went through with NYPD, right? You know, on top of that, you get a salary, you know, of almost 60000 to start. I mean, that's a significant amount of money and people are not taking it. So uh, I think that, you know, the mass exit we're seeing you know, can be centered, you know, to basically the defund the police movement, which has pretty much gripped every single major city. I mean, look, you know, I, I think that's really important what you just said. And that's another point, right? Like 2007, you're going to come on on the NYPD. You do go to a department that pays you higher. But we had zero recruitment <laughs> issues in 2007. I, I, I started with, I think, 38,000, but I made like 60 that year by the time I got out of the academy, like overtime, whatever. And then it was always up from there. Right? It was like, doo, doo, doo. I, I never, you know, the, the, you know I, I remember going through the academy and the guy saying, um, oh, you're never going to be rich on this job, kid. You're not going to have uh, the in-ground pool. You'll have the above-ground pool. You know, and I never bought into that because I have every type of pool now. You know, but <laughs> I always say, <laughs> if, you, if, if you do the right things, You'll, you, it doesn't matter if you use your money smartly, you'll be a right. Right. So, so I didn't buy into that, but I knew what he was saying. He's like, don't rely on just this job, you know, have other things and be smart with your money. Right. And that, that 2007 class was $25,000. It started. And that was like that for like three years and guys were still signing up $25,000 a year to live in New York city is impossible. It's not even, you're homeless. You're homeless. You, you're you're going to eat maybe and you have a car. You live in your car and you're eating. It's impossible to do. And we still had zero recruitment issues. People were helping, having their family help them out. Maybe their wife was working a little harder, you know, and they went through those rough times to get to where they had to be. And, and just like you said, police work is rough, man, right? So when I watched that video, you know, everybody's like, oh, I feel terrible for that cop. That cop doesn't care anything what that guy's saying. He has him totally blocked out. But my but my my bigger problem with that video is that person in the past would have been arrested for being disorderly. They would have been arrested for being disorderly conduct, uh, unreasonable noise, causing public alarm, uh, causing a crowd to form. And they would have spent the night in jail for that. Um, and the reason that is, is how do you feel if your wife's walking down the block with your children and that person's talking to a police officer like that. Is anybody safe there? You know, and, and not only that, that, that those police officers are being distracted from anything else that could go on right there, their, their performance and duty. They're not just there giving the guy the ticket. They're there for everyone in that neighborhood. Maybe something's going to go on. That guy's going to get off with that ticket today. See you later, buddy. Got to go. You know, there was a shooting, whatever it is. There's somebody choking anything. They're going to run. And he's distracting that. They can't hear that radio. They can't hear all these things. So I think my bigger problem with, you know, because again, we're deaf to these things, right? People have said things to me. I laugh at everything. I don't care. Like you could say anything you want to me. I don't really care. Call me any, any racial name you like, whatever you'd like to say, but do it in a tone and your mannerisms in a, in a proper way 
talk to me like a human and I'll, I'll treat you just like a human. I'm in control. I just don't put your hands in your pocket. Don't do that. And you can call me whatever you like. You'll get the summons and we'll be on our way. But, you know, that's the bigger problem to me is that, you know, those guys are really questioning and they're afraid. You know, we have I, I don't know if you guys have a similar bill. We have in New York, the diaphragm law. Um, just came back into effect. And basically, if there's any interaction, and I don't care what you're arrested for, murder or some nonsense on the street like that, that could have been avoided if the guy would just keep his mouth shut. Um, and basically, if if at any time during that interaction, whether it be intentional or unintentional, there's compression on that guy's chest, that cop is just committed a misdemeanor in New York City law. Like, so, you know, these guys are taking a step back and you can see that when you watch that video that they don't want to fight with that guy. They don't want to even put handcuffs on him. They're like, I just want to give him the summons and I want to get out of here. But that's a big, big problem. That's a big problem mentally. That's a big problem for, like you said, young kids that are going to come in. Do I want to do this job? You would like if Washington, D.C. didn't take you, you would have been on the NYPD $25,000 a year. Yeah. And you know what? I would have been happy doing it, too, because I wanted to do the job. And, you know, you know, something you just said, which is really important, which is that, you know, listen, cops are used to people trash talking them even before defund the police, even before 2013. From the day I came on the job, people would trash talk to you. Right. You got them in handcuffs. Hey, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to beat you up. I'm coming at your mother. Wait till I see you off duty. Like, it's fine. Like, we can deal with that. Right. Even guys that weren't in handcuffs. Like, yes, it's a dangerous job. But now. What you're seeing is it is an, it's an acceptable behavior to to delegitimize police where they're no longer effective, right? How is a police officer supposed to come out here and do this job if nobody takes them seriously? And above them, nobody is saying, hey, listen, like you're allowed to enforce the law, right? And 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 what that's done is that is emboldening criminals to hurt cops. And and I think it's really important. So you know, if you go to the FOP, uh, the Federal Alert Police, they're really good at keeping stats. So, you know, I, and, and I pulled them and I follow this. So, you know, as of July 31st, 2022, get this, 210 law enforcement officers have been shot. OK, that's just just in just in almost seven months. Right. With 39 killed, 46 ambush style attacks with 71 shot, 18 killed. That's a 20 percent for 2022. 20%. Imagine what that's like. I mean, and those are just, you know, shootings. You know, you see the videos, cops are being attacked with knives. There's, you know, they're in their car doing all the right things, right? They got a wall behind them, a wall at their side. Someone comes running up wanting to do them hard. Like, where can you eat? Like, Tell me who wants to take this job right now. I'm listening. Who wants to be a cop? Tell me. Because the money is there. The question is, you know, do do you want to tell your friends and family you do this? And are you going to lose some friends? Like, are you going to be able to go somewhere if somebody knows you're the police? And I think that's what we're dealing with right now. And I think that the only way that we're going to be able to fix the retention crisis that we have and the hiring crisis is that we have to fix the narrative on policing. And if we don't do that, uh, you know, guys like me, you know, you, I got another nine years and 11 months. So, you know, that's what you get out of me. After that, uh, you know, you're going to be on your own. Hope you can find a couple of more Adam Chattels, you know, because I don't know who wants to take this job right now. And who's going to go out the way you did and proactively police is another problem, right? Because the guys are coming out, they're taking the job. Oh, I need the money. But I see a very soft police department. I was in New York City a few weeks ago, not the same department I was in. You know, I see a lot of guys straight headed. They're driving in their car. They don't know who's next to them. They're doing this. And I'm like, it's it's not, you know, it's always peace through strength. 
You know, um, we, we eliminate problems before they start by by showing a strong message, by having the backing of our elected officials, by having the backing of our leadership. And, and I agree with you. That's that's a, a that 100 percent has to be fixed. You know, I remember one time I was in Park Hill. You know, it's notorious in Staten Island and they were having a barbecue. There's a bunch of guys having a barbecue. There's a shooting there the night before. It's late. It's one o'clock. I'm doing impact. They send me over from like a totally different neighborhood. They're like, Hey, go clear, go clear, go clear the barbecue. Tell them that's it. It's one o'clock in the morning. It's over. I go there. There's hundreds of people in the court. I go up to who I see like a has to control the radio. I walk up, I shut the radio off. I start talking to them. I'm like, listen, you guys got to go. It's late. You got to go. You can't hang out here. You're keeping people up. People got work in the morning. That's what it is. And it's just me and my partner who's smaller than me. I'm only five, nine. I'm 200 pounds. I work out, but I'm not a big guy by any stretch of the imagination. My partner's even littler than me. And he's like, what, what the fuck are you going to do? What are you two guys going to do? And I'm like, listen, I'll get on the radio right now. And in three seconds, I'm going to have a helicopter here and 50 cars. Do you want to have that? Or does everyone want to just enjoy the rest of the night, break it up and go somewhere else? And legitimately, everyone in that party listened to what I said. And they knew that was a fact that I would have 50 cars there. They would all get arrested. They would all spend the weekend in jail. And they were like, no, you know what? I'm not going to do this. And they break it up and they leave. And we don't have that anymore. You show up to that. Those cops are getting their ass kicked. Right. And now it's a melee. Now someone's getting hurt. And then maybe even if somebody gets shot completely unnecessary because we gave that strength away. So you're saying that we need to fix it. And I always, my big thing is always, we can't fix it. The, the citizens have to fix it. We, we can fix it by uniting and, and making sure our vote is strong as frontline workers, as police officers. We can make sure our vote strong and our message getting heard on both sides to both the elected. Because I really, you know, I'm, I'm so partisan, it's not funny. And, you know, I, you follow me on Twitter, you see I rip the Republicans, I rip the Democrats. I just want a real message. I want you to tell the, the, the truth to the public. And I feel like that's how we're going to do it. But we need the support of the public and their vote. How do you feel we could fix this? Like, what's the fix here? So, I mean, obviously there's no magic pill, right? There's, there, there's just no way possible just to flip a, you know, a light switch and, you know, change the attitude. What I think that we need to do is I think that we need to first attack the problem we're dealing with, which is the manpower shortage, right? And it needs to be fixed fast. And here, here's why. Unlike any other job in the world, you just can't shake a tree and, you know, find a detective. You can't find a cop, right? Like anybody here, and I'm, and I'm certainly not, you know, downgrading anybody that works, you know, at, you know, a big box retail store or anything. But unlike that, where you submit an application online, you go in there, you might have to take a drug test, you get hired in three days. You know, policing is not like that, right? Finding applicants takes a considerable amount of time, take three to six months. And then after you find them, you have to test them. And then after you do a test, you got to do a physical test and a psychological and a criminal background. And you got to put them through a police academy. That's six to nine months. And then after they get out, you got to put them through a field training. You know, we're talking 15 months at some, you know, supersonic speed. So I think the, 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 the first answer starts with getting rid of the shortage. And the way we do that is we need to change our narrative. The second thing is, which I, I think is really important, is that, you know, we need to fix the criminal justice system. And when I say that is that, you know, you talked about that example or you gave that, you know, you, you know you, you, that experience at the party. There's no longer consequences anymore for criminality, period. I mean, you know, it's. It, you know, to, what it boils down to is this. You don't put your hand on a hot stove because 
you're going to get burned and you're probably not going to like it. You'll probably remember it for the rest of your life. It's the same thing. If you're caught with a gun uh, and, you know, you get locked up, you're probably going to remember that and I want to carry one again. But what we're seeing is that, you know, we're making cases and they're not being prosecuted. And the ones that are prosecuted, they're given probation on top of probation on top of probation. You know, there's more probation than I have time on, the, the you know, the police department. And that's that's the problem. So, you know, there it's it's multifaceted, but we have to change the narrative. We have to fix the manpower shortage and we have to fix the criminal justice system. If people are getting arrested for violent crimes and nobody's being prosecuted, then guess what? Uh, you know, you and I can sit here with the rest of the world and bang our hands against the world, uh, against the wall, but it's, it's not going to make any difference. So we really do need, you know, more of the support. But I, I, I think that at the end of the day, it's really going to come down to leadership. And I think that elections are crucial. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, you know, and, and everything, everything you're saying is, is, is dead on because, you know, and, and the other thing we don't even talk about, like the life of being a police officer or detective or supervisor, like you really have no quality of life. You work all the time. You work every hour, you work the weekends, you work the holidays, you know, and, and we are, we're, we're you know, you're going towards young men and women to take this profession, to learn from guys like me and you that are more experienced and not only are we losing the experience on the street, you're losing those guys. Now the young men and women are saying, like, why do I want this life if I'm getting abused? So that's, you know, you, John, know. you know, John, it's funny you said that because, you know, you and I have talked about retention and hiring. And, you know, think about this, right? Because of the shortage, we have cops now that are working around the clock. On my department, we force people every day. We mandate them to work overtime because we don't have any cops. We take away their days off. Uh, you know, I... You, you can go back to my Twitter feed. I, I, I did a news story. Uh, we worked 40, I think it was 44 days straight with like no days off uh, back when the truckers were coming to DC because we had no cops. No one had days off. They're working around the clock, multiple tours. It is a huge commitment that people make. So if you took policing prior to defund the police and said, hey, you're going to do this job. It's really dangerous. Uh, you're not going to make a lot of money. And you know, if you work in a major city like New York, you know, rest assured that, you know, on New Year's Eve every year, you're going to be freezing your butt off. But that's that's our thing. If you work in D.C., be prepared for the inauguration every four years and be prepared for July 4th fireworks. You're going to work July 4th every year. OK, but I still want to be the police. OK, fine. If you can endure that, great. Now, guess what? You're not going to have any days off. You're going to work two tours in a day. You're going to work long hours. And there's the tell me, tell me how that's appealing to anybody. Yeah, I mean. It, like I always said, police work, you're not doing it for a pat on the back. You're not doing it for the pay. You're doing it because you have an overwhelming sense to protect your community. You have an overwhelming sense when you hear that radio call, you read that report and you're like, oh, my God, this just happened last night. Like, where is this guy? We didn't get him. Oh, let's go get him. Like, like, like most citizens do, right? Most citizens hear things on the news and they want to do something. But we actually get the ability to do that. That's the beautiful thing about law enforcement, you know? And, and yeah, the, and you know, you, like I said, you're not going to get rich off of it, but you know, NYPD, you're giving up your whole summer. You're working every night, you know, your whole summer, you have parade after parade, Puerto Rican day parade, Dominican day parade, you know, uh, Labor Day parade, uh, 4th of July, every weekend, Memorial Day, every weekend, your, your days off are gone, you know, uh, throughout the winter, really all the way throughout the winter, you know, you Thanksgiving Day Parade, all this stuff, and, you know, days off are always, and, 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 and it's true, you know, the defund the police movement, 
when it started, when it started back, it's funny. It's just a point I want to bring up. We lost a lot of guys at that time. So you know what happened? Everyone that was working got slammed with overtime, right? Overtime oh, went up. Every, overtime went up. Our overtime budget, even though it got snapped, it went up. It, we, we didn't defund the police. You, you funded the police. You know, you, less guys. And, and then at the height of that, we start seeing, you know, and even till today, like we see a big mental health crisis. We see a lot of guys committing suicide, unfortunately. Yeah. We see a lot of guys like psyching off the job. Because and, and and they're not full of shit and, and they really are losing it because I, I've experienced those things in my career where, you know, like I really had to like tone down on my faith. I had to really just buckle down and get into my faith because, you know, the things that these men and women see every day are, you know, you know, I, I'm always a guy. Oh, it didn't bother me. It didn't bother me. Nothing bothers me. But stuff bothers you. You know what I mean? And, and you know, people get as you get older, you start to experience anxiety, you start to experience all these things. And you're always working, you're never sleeping, you can never make a plan, you know, you're trying to do the right things, maybe you're married, or you have children, or you're divorced, and you have all these other life things that you're never around for. All your friends are doing this, and you're never there. So at the end of the day, if we just keep beating the crap out of people, people are going to be like, I'm not doing this. And, and you know, and, and that's kind of what happened with me. I was like, you know, what? I'm just going to start my own business. I'm going to leave. And, and that's it. You don't want me. You don't want me. I, I dedicated my whole life for 18 years to the police department. My family came second. You know, I'm embarrassed to say it, but it's true. My, my wife and my children came second to the NYPD. And, and I did that for years and years and years just because I didn't know any better. And I, I, I felt a mission to serve. And I said, all right, when I retire, I'll focus more on my family. You know, and now looking back, it was stupid on my part. There should be some type of quality of both. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, and so like, I, that's my answer is, is, you know, go to the elected, go to them, like, let's, let's really change the narrative in this country and show people who cops are. And that's kind of why I started this podcast too. So I appreciate you coming on and, and giving light to all that stuff. Um, do, do you have any, anything that you could think that we could do to, to help recruit young talent right now, the way it is other than money? You know, I, I think that if you look back to the reason why guys like you and me became cops and you say to yourself, okay, like, what, what, what was it, right? Like, what was so attractive about it, right? You go back to that time where people, people respected cops and, you know, and you, you, you go back to a time where people always knew like, hey, uh, if you're in trouble, you can call the police. Well, is that the way now? Because, you know, I don't have kids, but I got nephews and I've seen, you know, I've seen, I've seen their student handbooks and the first, the first page of it all says the same stuff that we reject the police and, you know, they're inherently racist killers. And, you know, if you need help, go ask a teacher and, and that's fine to ask a teacher, but I, I, I don't know if the world's in a good place when you can't turn around and say, Hey, I'm in trouble. Let me turn to a cop. I mean, think about this, John, our cops, no matter what city you work in, you can work in some small town. Cops are generally some of the best problem solvers out there. Think about it. Cops receive information in real time. They must process it and make split-second decisions. Name, name. There's very few jobs you could think of, of people that actually do that every single day. And I'm not even just talking about being courageous, whether it's applying a tourniquet, you know, whether it's figuring out, hey, like, you know, can I transport this guy or does he need a helicopter? You know, you know, what do I do? This, this, this car, do I break the window? Is that going to cause, you know, an influx of, 
you know, fumes. Like, I don't know. There's just a myriad of things that happen. And these are your best problem solvers, right? And what are you saying to folks like you? Like, hey, guess what? Like, you know, you don't really matter and uh, we'll figure it out. Well, how's that working out for you right now? Because it's not really looking too good. Well, yeah, that's what happened. They said we, we didn't count. We defund the police. Then they throw these mandates on us and they're telling all of us, oh, well, we'll just backfill you with National Guard. You're like, you're going to backfill me with National Guard? They don't even know. How they, they don't like they don't have any clue how to police the city. Like, that would be the worst possible thing you could do. But you're telling me you don't matter. You're telling me I don't matter. Right? Like, I don't matter. I'm just a number. You're replaceable. Tons of people want your job, which maybe at a point was true. But then I start to self-reflect and I say, well, hey, if, if I really am just a number and you don't care about me and what am I doing this job for? Why am I putting myself at risk? Why is my family second? Why am I not spending time with my kids? Why am I not at my kids' school events? Why am I not focusing on their homework more? And or 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 myself, if I'm single and I'm not married, you know, why am I not going out at night and 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 meeting girls? Maybe part of the, the or, or a significant other. Maybe part of the reason I can't meet anyone is because of this job. And and that's what they're they've done is like have a lot of police officers do like some serious self-reflection because people are under a lot of stress right now. Law enforcement community is under a lot of stress. And I'll tell you right now, I get calls every day, every day I get calls from people that aren't near their retirement time. The people that have came up to their retirement time that I know are leaving in droves, except for the upper, the real upper echelon of the police that really don't go out and do police work. So they'll still tell you, oh, it's a great job, but they have no clue what the average men and women on the street are saying. You know, at 20 years in NYPD, people are retiring in mass, you know, and we're seeing that with the biggest police uh, recruit classes we've ever had in NYPD history. And, and I keep saying, I keep throwing it out there on social media. By 2028, we will have got to the, 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 the majority of people that came on this job from September 11th, you know, and, and they have from September 11th to 2018. Those were the biggest NYPD classes. We had them in every six months and we're losing those classes in mass and we're not even filling them in, in a court. So I keep saying by 2028, this department's going to be in half if we don't fix this right now, right now. You know, um, and, and I don't even want to see what New York City is going to look like that. I love New York City too much to even to even think about that. So it's a scary thought for me. And I'm sure it's the same for you in D.C., you know. Yeah, I mean, it is scary. I mean, it's scary. You know, it's real for me, too. You know, I'm from New York. All my family's there. You know, they're still in Staten Island and uh, in Jersey and stuff. And I think about them every day. You know, I, I always, you know, try to keep up on the crime. And, you know, it's 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 scary to me because, you know, so I know cops. I know how cops think. I know how they you know, they act. And I know that, you know, cops don't stop policing. What they do is, is they basically take a pause for a second and they consider proactive enforcement. And you and I talked about this, which is that cops will always react. It's, it's ingrained in them. It's taught in you since day one, that if you see something, you know, you're going to react. Right. But now what you're seeing is, is that cops are saying to themselves, uh, I have a hunch, but if I if I act on this hunch, like what's going to look like tomorrow on CNN? Like, what if I'm wrong? As in, in the past, it was like, well, what were you doing? Hey, the cops saw something. He, he addressed up. He called. Thank God for the police rider. Hey, no, no, I'm no foul. But that's why we're seeing what we're seeing. And I and I think it's really important that you know going forward that when people hear a podcast like this, they don't think of a bunch of cops that are complaining. What they what they should be hearing is 
it's a cry for help because much like unions like mine and, you know, New York City, I remember you guys, I saw you guys on TV, you know, right after the death of George Floyd, we were like calling for calm, like, hey, calm down, calm down, relax, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, just just hang on a second here. And, you know, we warned of this, right? We said, hey, we're going to see massive spikes in crime. Hey, good cops are going to leave this job. They're going to quit. People are going to take early retirements. You're not going to be able to find cops to replace them if you demonize them. Well, here we are. And this isn't about, I told you so. What this is about is how do we stop the bleeding? Because everybody here, you know, I, I've heard people say this before. They'd be like, well, you know, the cops, the cops are probably happy this is happening. That's what they wanted. And I say to myself, how could you think that? We don't live in, you know, uh, towers. I live in a house. I have to worry about my own property. I have my father in Staten Island, my stepmother and my stepbrothers. I have family in Jersey. I worry about them going to the store. So just not true. What we are trying to do is we're trying in the best way possible to tell people, hey, we need your help. And that's where we're at. Yeah, and that's and that's what I think. I think everyone just needs to get a little smarter with everything. And and maybe since everyone's a law enforcement expert today, let's really be law enforcement experts. Let's say what what type of policing worked. How did all of these nations, these big cities across the nation, take these crazy murder rates and these crazy shooting rates and bring them to the to levels never seen before all the way down to the floor and why is it rising again at what point at what type of strategies were we using you know and really and really lobby your politician and really lobby your police department and police commissioners and police unions you know what What's the message? What are we doing? What's the focus? And I, and I know I, I'll speak freely for the NYPD. There is no there is no clear leadership right now. There is no clear mission. I don't even know what it is. I don't even know how these guys go to a community council meeting and look these people in the face and tell them that they're going to help them out. I have no idea how how that's happening right now. You know, we really need to go back to enforcing law, enforcing minor crime, you know, like you said, like a hunch, like there's so many things that changed so recently, you know, all of a sudden marijuana is legal. You could use marijuana on the street. You could shoot up on the street. And I'm like, okay, so how do I even investigate a crime now? How do I even stop that person? Yeah, I know that's wrong. And I know that a police officer should stop that. And I want to stop that, but I can't. So what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? There's nothing I can do. I mean, it's, 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 it's a tough spot, right? I mean, you know, when you, you, you touched on something, which is like, you know, what do we do? Or, you know, what's the message? Like, you know, what is the vision? And I don't know what the vision is for my department. I mean, I've heard a bunch of stuff, but I'm really not sure. Right. Cause on one hand, you know, you know, we, on a daily basis, you know, we have shooting after shooting after shooting murder. Sometimes we get two in a day. Sometimes we get three in a day and it's, Oh my God, yeah, the murders are spiking. Do something. Okay, great but do something, but don't do something. You know what I mean? Just go out there, you know, be visible. Okay, so you want me to do what? You want these cops to go out there and stand out in a corner? You want them to sit in front of a store? What do you want them to do? Because the problem is, is that because we have no message, the real people that are being impacted are the good citizens. You know, you take the District of Columbia, you know, our response time now is exponential. I think it's another 90 seconds on top of what would have been 60 seconds to a priority assignment. You know, I, you know, I, and I know you know this being a cop, you know, anybody that's been in a fight before, you count the seconds and tell me how long it is. Someone's punching your head. You know, I'm, I, I, I'm not very tough. Uh, I can certainly handle myself. I'm, you know, I'm five foot nine, you know, 225, 230 pounds. And uh, I'm certainly not a UFC fighter, but uh, I'll tell you right now, I certainly can't take shots to the head for that long. 
uh, go tell that to John Q. Simpson. You know, I mean, so, you know, I, I think that now is like, you know, really good time to start taking stock of where we're at and, you know, where we want to be at. Oh, yeah. And then and then even for you guys, the pressure that we're putting on detectives, too, is it's, it's immense. It's immense in the NYPD because now that we're not proactively policing and we don't have these street crime units taking care of actual crimes and actually doing minor investigations right there on the scene, small investigations going to lock up perpetrators now. Everything that happens in New York City, basically uh, a complaint report is generated and sent to the squad to deal with. Squad has to do a ton of work, investigate this case that's going to go nowhere because the DA is not even going to prosecute it. So we're weighing down our caseloads are insane right now. They're insane. And the, the real crimes that they're focusing on, the, the, the shootings, the rapes, the domestic violence, they're being thwarted. Not that they're still focused on them and they're still doing a great job and they still have a great closure rate. But none of those people are seeing jail or they're released immediately. And, you know, so the detectives are doing a great job in the NYPD and even the cops. I mean, for what, you know, for even just being there, they're doing a great job because, I mean, you're still going out there, even though you're like, all right, I don't really know what I'm going to do, but I'll, I'll do the best I can do. I'll figure it out. I'll make the best of it. You know, you're really putting your faith in God and your abilities to make a situation better. And, you know, like I said, I think, I still think, you know, like the detectives and I'm sure it's, it's true, true for you guys as well. You guys are getting bogged down and, it, and it's having an impact on the, on the other, the real stuff that you really should be focused on instead of getting these nonsense stuff that you got to close that should have been closed by patrol officers, you know? So it's, you know, that's a, another big problem to all of this as well. It's like, you know, well, we're not taking care of the minor crimes and we're focusing on the major crimes is the message. Right. And like, what's focus on the major crime. It's I'm throwing whatever happened on the street to you guys to investigate it. And it's after the fact it already happened. So we're not deterring it from happening again, unless this person has jail time. But like in New York, we have, we have decarceral DAs. They think they're social workers. Oh, we shouldn't put anybody in jail. We locked this guy up 70 times. That's 70 times we failed to connect him to services. What services am I giving a career burglar who's broken to 200 houses? Someone who's a shooter, who's carried, has been arrested with guns multiple times, who's shot 12 people, killed one. How, what, what service can I provide for this young man? Because obviously he's not, does not want to be part of society. You prove that. So, you know what I mean? And we're not talking about taking a kid smoking marijuana and put him in jail. I'm not even saying that kid should even get charged. Maybe a night in jail. Smarten him up, drop the case later on, give him an ACD, see you later, clean his record if he holds true. But if not, have him hold it. It's a consequence. You do something in that time, we're going to charge you for that too. You might have to yeah. go to jail for that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, John, I think you have a really good pulse on it. I mean, the, you know, what we're dealing with as detectives is, you know, pretty much everything you said. I mean, we're down dozens and dozens of detectives. You know, when you hear that, well, dozens. I mean, listen, uh, you just don't flip a light switch and find a detective. These are seasoned cops that have you know, you know, large, vast amounts of experience, you know, they're highly trained. These are people that are, you know, some of our best communicators. And, you know, you know, just to go back to the vaccine mandate for a second, you know, I had a handful of detectives uh, in my, you know, in my shop that just quit. They said, you know what, I'm not going to deal with this. And I, I was shocked. One of them was a very close friend of mine. We became detectives together. And uh, he's in my, he was in my sexual assault unit. You know, these are like 12 of like the best you know, sexual assault detectives, in my opinion, in the country. I mean, these guys know how to talk to people. Uh, you know, they, 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 they deal with victims. They deal with advocates, uh, you know, highly trained, highly experienced, gone because somebody said, uh, you know, or else. 
But, you know, something else, you know, that I think is, I, I think is really important is that, you know, in the world of investigations, you know, we're, we, we have seen a, you know, a total just almost shutdown, if you will, of cooperation in some aspects, you know, when I first started doing this as a detective, you know, you would go around the business, be like, hey, can I take a look at your cameras? Be like, yeah, sure, you want a bottle of water. Now it's like, I see your cameras, they're broken. No, go get a subpoena. You can't come in here. We don't, you know, I, I'm sorry, I have to check with the manager. Have a good day. Like, we don't even get cooperation anymore. Like, you know, let that sink in. Like, that that's that's a big deal. I mean, so, you know, I, I know a lot of the focus is, you know, on patrol guys. You know, that's the backbone of every police department. But you look at your investigations, imagine you know, having a business and some detective comes and go, hey, by the way, you know, you know, quietly, can I just take a look at your cameras? Or, you know, we get shootings, you know, every day, all day, and we go to someone's house, you know, we do it quietly, knock on the door, hey, can I see your ring doorbell footage, you know, do you have any activation? You know, they won't open the door or have a good day or, you know, the, these, this is all part of this movement to, you know, totally take the police and delegitimize them. Oh, yeah, that's a great point that you just made. And, and my opinion on, on that is not because they don't want to help you and not because they don't want to see that guy locked up. They're afraid. They're afraid because they know that guy, nothing's going to happen. To that guy He's going to be right back out tomorrow and he's going to be in front again. And he's going to know exactly where that camera came from. And, and there's no consequences for it. So there's nothing to keep that from happening to him or him being the victim the next time. And you're just knocking on the next guy's door off of his ring doorbell. That's my opinion on it. It's not that these, these business owners are pushing back on the police. These business owners are just playing the smart hand. They're saying, hey, you know what? I don't really like the way things are going on with the police right now. You know, nobody's really too favor. Everybody's out anyway. I think this guy robbed from my store 50 times, comes in here every day. I, I had a, you know, I don't know if you've seen on a, on a viral news, New York City two days ago. There's stores in New York City. The guy has locks where you get water. You have to, he literally has to come around the counter and open the, the refrigerator for you to get a bottle of water for a dollar. He's like, because if I don't, everything's gone. I've been robbed hundreds of times. Nothing happens to these people. I just have to lock everything. I yeah, haven't paid first, you know, and, and that's kind of what's happening, you know? Yeah, I mean, John, I tweeted about it the other day. I mean, you know, everybody's been hit hard by the defund the police, but, you know, one of the forgotten groups is their small business owners, right? These are the people that, you know, achieve the American dream, right? And we've totally turned our backs on them because we don't have enough tops. You know, there are stores in D.C. that have went from a place, you, you know, a corner store, you go in the shop to where the customer area is like four by eight. Everything now is behind plexiglass and it's numbered. Uh, give me a number two, give me a number 18, give me three number 34s. And the store owner has to get it. You know why? Because flash mobs come in on a daily basis and they take everything. I have cases that I've worked just recently. I had one where three guys came in. They assaulted the clerk. He was able to make an ID. You know, these guys took, you know, upwards of a thousand dollars and a uh, good ID and everything. And the prosecutor was like, uh, no, nah, we're not, we're, we're not going to prosecute that. Have a good day. You know? And then, you know, you have to go back and tell the business owner. And you're like, but I don't understand. Like I did what you said. Like I called the police, right? Like I, I was a good witness. I, I gave you the footage. I, I, you know, what, what now? Like, what do you say to somebody like that? Hey, go hire a security guard. Like, what do you do? And it's it's extremely disheartening. Yeah, no, it's terrible. That's absolutely terrible. And that and that's and that's what they're seeing. So they're like, you know what? I don't want to even be involved in anything with this. I'm just gonna do what I gotta do. I'll deal with this guy on my own. And he doesn't think I went to the police, so I'm not getting involved. And that's what's going on. And it's the same with information, right? It's the same with getting information, right? I'm I, I know that we would get we're getting way less information. 
way less. We would get a ton of information. We would know everything that was happening on the street in a moment's notice from all the arrests we were making. Now people are like, oh yeah, I don't know, man. Nobody's talking, right? Nobody's trying to make a deal. Nobody's talking. Warrants are down. Everything's down. You know, we talk about precision policing, but it's, this isn't it. You know, this isn't it. So, uh, but listen, I really, I, I appreciate you coming on, man. You know, you, you're a smart guy. You're definitely insightful, dude. Uh, I appreciate, you know, you're still serving. You're still out there. Um, I stepped away. You know, sometimes I miss it. I think about coming back in. But, I, you know, 18 years, I'm forty, going to be 42. I just, I'm like, you know, I don't think I have another run in me to start over again. So, uh, you know, I'm just down here. I'm just trying to give you guys a voice, you know, talk about real stuff, have real people come on and talk about it. Uh, is there anything that you could tell the public? Um, anything? Yeah, um, you know, I, 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 first of all, I want to absolutely just thank you so much for having me on. It's, it, it, it really is, really is an honor. I think, uh, you know, what you're doing is important work. I, uh, I think that it's, I think that the NYPD and the city are definitely at a great loss. Uh, you know, to have folks like you that are completely dedicated, you know, you can tell you're a cop through and through, it's not going to change. You know, you might have been away from the job for a little bit, but you understand what it is. And I, I'm, I'm not so sure that uh, they understand that they're literally taking out an entire generation of police. So uh, I certainly hope that whenever litigation is pending, you know, comes through and that you guys are either compensated or reinstated or something happens because, you know, this is not how we conduct business, um, especially for you know, men and women that have, you know, basically put on a gun and a badge and said, hey, uh, you know, kissing my loved ones and I may not come home, but, you know, have a good day. Um, my message to the public is simple. And I, I say this from a union standpoint, you know, cops and unions have consistently supported reform efforts, you know, throughout the history of police work. We have, like, that's how we've gotten to this point here, whether it's dealing with people with emotional issues, you know, dealing with people, you know, from different communities, you know, we, we've always been committed to entering into discussions about the ways we can improve police. But the problem is now is that with all the rhetoric regarding defunding the police, disarming the police in some instances, and policies that are, you know, on the horizon, creating databases about cops' history, you know, everything, you know, in the world besides their shoe size, we're not going to be able to retain good cops, and we're not going to be able to hire good cops. My message is simple. Take a look at what's going on. Take a look at your neighbors. Look at your family. Ask them how they feel. And if you know that what's happening is wrong, speak up, say something. No one's asking you to go out there and get into a confrontation with people. No one's asking you to get into social media fights. No one's asking you to go out there and protest. What we are asking you for is that when these elections come down and it's, you know, your city, it's your state, you know, vote in a way of people that are going to be pro-law enforcement, people that care about law and order, people that are going to turn around and say, hey, um, there is evil in this world. Unfortunately, there's a mechanism for that, and that's the police. The police have to go out there, and they have to sometimes arrest these people. Unfortunately, some of those people they arrest, they're not going to go peacefully. They're going to have to use some force. And through that force, they're going to do their best to get it right. But sometimes they might get it wrong. But that doesn't mean that you get rid of the entire institution. So I, I really hope that people hear that. Um, you know, I, I thank you for having me on today. Uh, for those of you that are listening, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you're more than welcome to. Uh, my Twitter handle is at ChatelDCPU. That's S H A A T 
A-L-D-C-P-U. Appreciate it, Adam. Listen, anything, uh, anything you could tell young guys? Anything that you tell a young guy coming on the job? Like, what, what advice have you given to young guys? Like, anything you could tell anybody looking to get a career in law enforcement right now? What, what advice will hold true, regardless of all this insanity that's going on around us? You know, let's let's take it back to, you know, policing. Let's take it back to when when things were going in, in, in the right direction. People are still taking this job today, and I applaud them. I think you guys are brave. We need brave people. We need brave men and women. We need people that care about their communities, people that don't want to see bad take over their community. They want, it, they want the old lady to walk down the block. They want the disabled person to walk down the block. They want children to walk freely and, and not be scared of violence. What's your message to them? My message to them is this. If you're looking for a career in law enforcement, do your due diligence, do your homework, make sure this is what you want. If it is what you want, select the right department. Make sure it's a department that's going to, you know, appreciate you for you. Um, The biggest thing is this, is that if you're in law enforcement now, if you're coming towards the end of your career, if you're just starting, remember this, everything that we do is under the microscope. It doesn't mean not to do anything. It doesn't mean to do everything. It just means be careful, watch your back, think about what you're doing and make sure that you're right. That's, that's, that's the best sound judgment I can give anybody right now because we have to keep moving forward. We have to. Now listen, I appreciate you coming on. Um, I'm going to end with you. I'm going to end with you, whatever you want to say, but uh, you know, anytime you want to come back, anything coming on, you're, you're more than welcome. You know, I, I learned a lot about DC today. I'm sure everybody else did. You're a very interesting guest. I really, I really do appreciate you coming on. And I'm going to keep talking on top of your Twitter handles. That's why every time you tweet. So if anybody's looking for Adam too. So if you could just finish off with whatever you want to say, and then just give us one last time on how we find you. You broke up a little when you did it the, the, the first time. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, like I said, thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's, it's been a real honor. I, I, I definitely would love to come back and speak with you again. Like I said, I, I think that, you know, as many people uh, that can, that can listen to this, I think they would have a better understanding of what it is that cops are facing and just kind of hear the insight because this was a very real conversation we had. I think that it was raw. There was a lot of emotion here, but I think that you would listen to this and hear the professionalism. You would hear that both of us care about this job you know whether you work in new york or you work in dc being a police officer is being a police officer and i think that you know on a daily basis you see law enforcement officers in their off-duty status you know in their capacity responding to crimes responding to emergencies you know whether it's a fire it's a medical emergency and i and i i I would hate to think that the point we're at now could go down any further that you know, our capacity to help people can go down any further. So, uh, you know, I sure hope that this change is just a few hearts in mind. So, you know, with that, thank you so much. Uh, once again, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Chateau DCPU. That's S-H-A-A-T-A-L-D-C-P-U. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's it. The great Adam Chateau. Appreciate it, brother. Thanks, John. Stay, stay on me. For, stay on me for a second.